Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live around the world, this is The Ryan Lindsay Show. Phone lines are open to speak with Ryan or any of his guests at 319-527-6702 or email Ryan. The email address is ryan at ryanlindsayshow.com. Now, here's Ryan Lindsay. Once again, broadcasting live from the gorgeous Northwoods of Wisconsin, I am Ryan Lindsay, and this is The Ryan Lindsay Show. So happy to have you with us. Today, we'll be speaking with Laird Scranton about his book, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients. There's uh, so many ancient cultures separated by time and distance. They share similar cosmological philosophies and religious symbolism. We're going to talk about that and why that is with Laird Scranton coming up uh, shortly. I want to remind you about the rest of the week uh, who we'll have on the show here. Uh, Monday, I'm still not sure what happened with Dr. Uma Naidu, but uh, we rescheduled her to tomorrow. So we will speak with Dr. Naidu about her book, This Is Your Brain on Food. We'll be talking about uh, how food affects our mental health how different, uh, different things that we eat can, can help and fight depression, PTSD, ADHD, anxiety, and, uh, and much more. So Dr. Uma Naidu coming up tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. And then Friday, Connie Habish will be my guest. We'll talk about her book, Awakening from Anxiety, a spiritual guide to living a more calm, confident, and courageous life. So a lot of good shows on the way for you. Be sure you uh, take a look at ryanlindsayshow.com for more information uh, about uh, guests past, present, and future. And as always, I welcome now my co-host to the show, Tamara Gleason. Tamara, how are you? Hi. I'm good. I'm a little exhausted. How are you doing? You sound like bright and chipper tonight. Well, I, I don't know about Bright and Chipper, but uh, I, we always get kind of a, a an energy report from you. But I, I think I know yeah. what what it would be today. Yeah. I think anticipation yeah. and it, and confusion. <laughs> well, confusion. Well, energetically, you know, we all feel each other's emotions, right? That we are telepathic, energetically telepathic, connected beings. You know, and. Um, I think we're tired, you know, any year it's an election. It's all a bunch of, you know, hogwash, let's face it, right? And um, this year we've never experienced, I don't know where hogwash came, but but I think we've never experienced so much um, strange and bizarre experiences in our lifetime. So we've never been here before. And um, as an empathic being, and then we had that full moon that just knocked us out and you know, this looming, you know, pandemic that's coming around the corner. It's just, 
you know, the fear of porn has just been exhausting. And but yet we transmute it, we transmute it, we we look for the good, we look for the good, we look for the good. And you can you can feel the transformation happening now, can't you? It, it's deep inner healing, deep inner good stuff. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of, you know, my healer friends. We're all feeling it, you know. It's like everybody mm-hmm. has their own personal experience, you know, and we see it in the other, but we're all this is an internal job truly to, to become the best version of ourselves. And it's kicking my arse. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's kicking me. But um but it, I did You're feel very empathic. A lot lighter. Yeah, I felt as an empath I felt lighter today. You know, it's kinda like these waves just hit us and I felt lighter today. And um and then I kinda, you know, energetically it's like anytime we interact with others and and uh it, it's just been a, it's just been a day, but I'm very excited about this guest. I think he's going to give us lots of really intriguing information because the ancient ones got us to hear, right? So I mean, sure. I think there's so much ancient wisdom that is still just so available for us. So I'm so excited to uh, hear our guest tonight. Oh yeah, me too. Absolutely. I think we we can kind of shed some of the uh, the the stress from today and, and take a listen to Laird Scranton here and, and kind of look back on, on what was and what is rather than looking at politics right now, kind of take a break from that right now. Absolutely. You think? Please. Please. <laughs> yes. Yep. 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 Well, you know, healers and leaders have been around since the beginning of time. Right. So, you know, we just keep evolving. So I'm excited. I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Absolutely. Laird Scranton is the author of a series of books on ancient cosmology and language, including The Science of the Dogon and Point of Origin. He has presented at conferences throughout the United States and is a frequent guest on many of the big-time radio shows. And uh, we're so happy that he's decided to join us for this little one. Very glad to welcome Laird Scranton to the show. Laird, how are you? Hey, Ryan, I'm good. Thank you very much for inviting me to come on. I, I appreciate it. You're right that it's a great great break from the the bumpy ride we're all on this week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We get, uh, I always like uh, ancient mysteries of history, and so uh, we'll, look, we'll look back instead of looking forward for, for at least a little while tonight. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone, Laird, who, uh, who isn't familiar with your work, explain your, your research and, and what you compiled into this book. Okay, well, back in the 1990s, late 1990s, I sort of accidentally stumbled across references to a modern-day African tribe called the Dogon from Mali in the sort of northwest sump of Africa who um, have societal connections to a number of ancient traditions, and they make it their societal imperative to preserve original forms of those traditions, original symbols, original words, original civic practices, original rituals, and so... Uh, once I realized that, that that's what this tribe was about, um, I sort of accidentally wrote a book. I was I was taking notes for myself, um, keeping track of what I was learning about what this tribe said and what anthropologists had to say about the tribe, and um, eventually self-published the book because I had enough material to ju- it was laid out in the right format. I may as well just publish it. Mm-hmm. So then that book, I was fortunate, found a famous Egyptologist named jo- uh, John Anthony West 
who personally shopped publishers for it at a publishing fair in New York City and uh, hooked me up with a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster called Inner Traditions. And since then, I've published a series. I'm about to publish the 12th in a series of books that explore sort of geographically um, these ancient traditions, uh, beginning with this modern African tribe in, in Mali, um, moving to Egypt, to India, to Tibet and China, to um, ancient Turkey, uh, to uh, the United Kingdom, northern Scotland, uh, to New Zealand, to the Maori, um, who are a very interesting tribe uh, there. Um, it's a very interesting set of, of connections, and the more, more you learn about it, the more you realize that um, all of these archetype themes that Jung recognized as being common across you know, widely distant cultures um, are a connection between these groups that um, the Dogen and the Buddhists and other groups claim that they were part of an instructed tradition for humanity, a civilizing plan back in ancient times that was taught to many different groups around the world. And that's sort of the mm-hmm. foundation of what I write about. Okay. What are the what really are the similarities between Buddhism and the Dogon and, and maybe even ancient Egypt? Okay. Uh, most fundamentally, they, they all seem to rest on a single philosophy. It was first expressed in India. It's called Samkhya. And Samkhya is a, a cosmological philosophy that's um, a companion to yoga. We're all familiar with yoga, but not very many people have heard of Samkhya. And Samkhya is a non-theistic, um, essentially scientific expression of how processes of creation happen that many of the later classical traditions in India and other places, uh, religious traditions in India and other places are based on. Um, what the Dogen say, the Dogen priests say that their symbolic system describes how their tribal god created matter. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I could see, based on their descriptions and their drawings, that they had a, a scientific understanding of what an atom was and what electrons and protons and neutrons were, even down to uh, a drawing that's a correct representation of an electron orbital shape. That's been, you know, we, can, we can image it now using electron microscopes, but a primitive African tribe shouldn't have been able to do that. So I thought, right. what what are the chances that the, this detailed descending structure for matter that they describe could also be scientifically correct? And so I started educating myself because I didn't know a whole lot about that and just realized eventually that you can lay what the Dogen say side by side with what people like Stephen Hawking or Brian Greene say, even down to uh, comparing diagrams and drawings. And it's scientifically reasonable, all of it. How did the Dogon then get knowledge of the atom? Where did that come from? Someone had to teach them. Right. The Dogon and the Buddhists, I'm fortunate that the the symbolic systems of the Dogon and the Buddhists are a very close match, given in different languages. So I can sort of use one to cross-check what the other one says. They both claim that in ancient times there was deliberate instruction from someone who understood these concepts better than we did um, that that spelled out for us um, how these processes work. And when they talk about um, concepts of creation, they're talking about three, three separate themes. They're talking about how the universe forms, how matter forms, and how biological reproduction happens. And those processes, the way the Dogen understand it, are so fundamentally similar to each other that whoever put together this ancient symbolic system simultaneously described all three of those themes 
using a single progression of symbols. Every symbol has meaning, parallel meaning for each of those three thing, themes. So, uh, for example, we have a, um, the shape of a hemisphere that, if we're talking about biological reproduction, represents the expanded womb of a mother. But if we're talking about how matter forms, it represents the expansion of mass before particles are created. Um, so you have comparable meanings, not always precisely the same meanings, but appropriate to the theme, uh, parallel set of meanings all the way up and down the scale. Um, so you can't really fairly ask what a symbol represents. You have to ask what does it represent if we're talking about how the universe formed or what does it represent if we're talking about biology. Okay. Um, the the Dogon, they're still around, aren't they? Yes, there are about 300,000 uh, Dogon tribes people right now. They live in small villages that we would consider to be primitive villages. They don't have access to technology. They live about an eight-hour drive across desert from, from anything we'd consider to be civilized um, in the southern part of Mali. They live along a, a set of cliffs in escarpment, and they, they are farmers. They they raise uh, actually very talented farmers. They raise onions, and um, they are very talented artists. They do um, wood carvings, and they do paintings, and then they do um, weavings, and they do a lot of interesting, interesting things. Hmm. How far back does the symbolism go? When when do we start seeing the symbolism that the Dogon has? Um, it's obvious, looking just at the Dogon that a lot of the, the civic practices the Dogon uh, preserve or perpetuate are predictably in agreement with ancient Egypt at around 3000 BC. But the philosophy, we see the first expression symbolically of a lot of the philosophy back at around 9000 BC in southeastern uh, Turkey at a place called Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe, okay. All right. How... how how do I mean to ask this? Um, are the Dogon willing to give up or, or pass on their knowledge to to people today? Um, they are in sort of a qualified way. The, the way the system works, this is called an esoteric tradition, and it's an oral tradition. The Dogon don't have a written language. It's passed down the way apprenticeship worked back in the day in the United States, where um, a student would learn a master skill from from a, uh, an instructor who had been practicing it for 30 years. So this is the way this knowledge is passed down, that any person who genuinely wants to learn it is free to pursue it. But it's the responsibility of the student to keep actively pursuing it, to keep actively asking the next question that expands their own knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. The, one of the French anthropologists who studied the, uh, this tribe starting in the 1930s, they studied the, this was the premier anthropologist of Europe at the time, a gentleman by the name of Marcel Griol, brought teams into Dogon country for uh, every year for 30 years and was himself initiated in the tradition. Um, he was granted Dogon citizenship, and when he died, he was given a Dogon burial. Uh, this, mm. So... Any person in the tribe or out of the tribe who who sincerely wants to learn it can. Interesting. It, it sounds it, a, a little bit like like the the, the Masons and how um, a Mason won't necessarily ask you to become a Mason, but you need to ask and express your interest to them in order to join the club, so to speak. 
Right. It's very much the same tradition. There are common elements across, you know, the Masonic tradition that relate to the tradition I'm talking about. The same is true mm-hmm. with the Maori in New Zealand, that um, any person can can ultimately learn about the inner secrets of their symbolic tradition, but it requires a long period of of time in close proximity to the, the priests who understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. Tamara, do you want to jump in here? <laughs> well, working with the indigenous cultures in, in North America, the tribe that feathered the name, me being the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago, formerly Winnebago, very, very similar, where, you know, if you are feeling called to it and you start ask, asking a shaman or a chief, they don't have to give it to you, but if you, you say it, you know, if if you generally have interest, they have to teach. But it, once you commit to that, it's kind of like an ongoing, you know, class that um, of spiritual knowledge that you have to continue to digest, so to speak. So it's just yes, yes. If I if I were a student, if I were a student and you were uh, an informant, as long as the question that I ask you, as long as you deem that to be appropriate to what I already know, you're required to give me a truthful answer. So it's just like you're you're saying. That as long as the student is careful about asking the um, or questions in an orderly way, the the shaman or the priest has to give them an, an honest answer. Right, because they've been blessed with that, and if you ask it appropriately, it is. And you know, not being from you know raised in that culture, we always heard it was secret, and it, what what the different dialect for them was no, it's sacred, and sacred means. You know, you have to be, you know, to that level to receive it. They have to kind of feel out if you're at that level to receive it. <laughs> so it, it's very, very interesting to, to to hear the similarities in the uh, dogma, as well as the ancient symbolism, you know, and what they received. You know, the Native Americans believe they received it as from great spirits or the star brothers and sisters. Is that something that the dogma talk about at all? It's coming where it comes from source or anything of that nature? They do, and those are tricky questions because if if the perspective we have is that someone way back in ancient times was talking knowledgeably about how matter forms, there's no place that that goes that a traditional academic person is going to tolerate. There's no right. answer <laughs> that you can give to that, that question that they're going to endorse. So we're... we're to start out with, we're on territory that this falls outside of traditional academia. Uh, but, yes, they do talk about it. Now, the biggest threat to a person like myself who does this kind of research is it's so easy to go off on a tangent thinking that something is relevant when it's not. Uh, the, like the human brain is wired to do that. The human brain is wired to make to understand patterns and to see patterns, even when there, uh, there might not legitimately be a pattern. Like you look up at the sky and you see a cloud, and it looks, oh, hey, that looks like a bunny. The cloud isn't really shaped <laughs> right. like a bunny, but we perceive it that way. Well, the same thing happens with this. And so to prevent that from sort of taking over, I make a rule for myself, and the rule is that all the interpretations have to begin with the ancient cultures. I have to begin by saying, okay, the Buddhists flatly say that such and such is true, and then my job becomes to test that against what the other cultures felt about the same concept or the same symbol. 
and to demonstrate that there's a consensus of opinion here about what that symbol represented. Um, right. So it, it's a little bit, little bit tricky trying to get down to the, the, the root meaning. So that's really the job that I'm, I'm pursuing is triangulating in on original meanings for these things. Right. Absolutely. And go ahead, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to ask, how long did it take to put together this this latest book, Laird? Well, this latest book is sort of a um, sort of a, a, a how can I say? Um, it's an overview, um, sort of a recap of ideas that had had come to me over a long period of time. As I was researching the other books, each of the books was about a particular had focused on a particular region and a particular tradition. But as I was doing that, I was noticing things. Um, I could see there were aspects to the symbolic system that re- sort of revealed the hand of of a deliberate teaching. You know, there's certain things that if you think back on the best teachers you had in elementary school or in high school, there's certain techniques they used to make it easier for easier for you to understand things. And I noticed as I was going along through these various cultures, many different points about. Um, um, how the hand of those teachers was reflected, and I always really wanted to talk about it. And so this is sort of a, um, a pause for for a minute to look back on all those different aspects of this and recap um, why it is that we can say with confidence that we're dealing with an instructed system here. There are so many aspects to it. You know, very consistent use of the way meaning is assigned to symbols. Very consistent use of certain kinds of metaphors. Um, that certain kind of information is always presented in a particular way, and certain words are formulated in a particular way. Um, when you get down into it, you realize that no one was trying to hide anything, that each of the individual words and the names of things, if you understand them properly, the, the names flatly tell you what they represent. You get down to names of deities in India or in, in New Zealand or, or wherever, in ancient Egypt, among the Dogon or whatever, the the way the, firm, the word is formulated flatly tells you what it was meant to represent. And with Egyptian hieroglyphs, it, gets, it goes even beyond that because every symbol used to write the word represents a concept. And if you substitute concepts for those symbols, you produce a sentence, and that sentence is the definition of the word. So you can, you can say with certainty that whatever scribe wrote this word was intending to express this idea. Mm-hmm. Can you give a couple examples of, of maybe metaphors, ancient metaphors that we would recognize today? Okay, there was one of the the techniques they used was the symbolism starts to get complicated. If you're talking about um, scientific concepts and stages of creation that happen from the beginning as waves, you know, matter begins in a wave-like state and extend all the way up to atoms, which are sort of a fairly sophisticated set of particles. Um that the symbols used to represent all that start to get out of hand. It's hard to keep a handle on where should this next symbol fall along that continuum. You come across a symbol you hadn't encountered before. And so there's a set of metaphors that are presented to try to make that easier on us. And they're they're represented as four-stage metaphors. And each stage sort of points us to um, a quarter segment of, of that continuum of symbols. Uh, the one we're probably most familiar with is water, fire, wind, and earth. Um, there are a number of ways to look at those symbols, but water, in the, simp- in the simplest view, water represents the matter in its wave-like state. Um, 
wind represents vibration. Uh, uh, fire represents uh, an act of perception. Um, and uh, earth represents mass or matter. Um, there are multiple sets of these metaphor stage metaphors uh, that are presented in relation to things that should be familiar to us. One of them is given in terms of four stages of the growth of a plant, from a seed to a grown plant. Another one is given in terms of the animal kingdom, running from um, insects to fish to four-legged animals to birds. And so if I go to ancient Egypt and I find a god like the god Kepper, who's the dung beetle, who has the head of an insect, Kepper in ancient Egypt represents the concept of non-existence coming into existence. That's a very early stage of this process. And so it's represented in terms of insects, which is the first of those four stages. If you go to um, the formulation of a word, which is what the domain of the god Thoth is, Thoth has the head of a bird. That's a very high-level concept, and so it falls in the fourth of those stages. And so whoever these teachers were, they were, they were aiming, because they're talking about science, they were necessarily aiming this information at a future audience that was technologically capable enough to recognize what they were talking about. But that, yeah. for them, would have been you know, thousands of years into the future. So they likely had no idea which of the metaphors was going to resonate with us. A metaphor only works if the person you're talking to can relate to it. And so to, to hedge that, they express things in terms of multiple different metaphors, hoping that maybe one of those would resonate. Mm-hmm. Talking with uh, Laird Scranton, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients. If you'd like to join us in the conversation or uh, if you have a question or comment, feel free to give a call. 319-527-6702 is the number. Uh, talking about his book again, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, The Cosmological Plan for Humanity. And Laird, you, you brought up Gobekli Tepe earlier. Um, I- explain what exactly Gobekli Tepe is. Okay, Gobekli Tepe is uh, a very, very early megalithic site uh, where large stones were raised in stone circles. This is in southeastern Turkey. Um, It's so early, in fact, that the date of the site that's been determined through radiometric dating precedes the first evidence we have for the tools that were required to build it. (laughs) So... this is maybe a thousand years after the end of the the last ice age. Um, someone was raising um, massive stone pillars and carving very in, uh, intricate pictures of animals and other symbols on those pillars. And um, part of the reason we know about it is because after they were finished, after about a thousand years of this site, um, the site is along a hillside in in southeastern Turkey, and there are a series of these. Uh, stone circles that are buried. Uh, only about 20% of it has been excavated so far. But after about a 1,000 years of use of the site, the people who were involved with it deliberately and carefully covered it over. Um, we're not sure why, but one effect of that covering it over is that it preserved the site for us so that we come along, we excavate it, and these carvings are pristine. These are... Um, thousands and thousands of years old, you know, 11,000 years old. Amazing. Well, 
This is all this is all very very complex. You can tell you've you've obviously done your research, Laird. <laughs> well, I've been at it for a while, but it helps a lot that it's a sensible system. You know, not not trying to to put um, apples and oranges together. Whoever whoever formulated the system put um, thought into it and thought about things in very much the same ways that we do. So it it doesn't seem haphazard. It seems sensible. Mm-hmm. How does Carl Jung and, and Einstein fit into all of this? Carl Jung fits in because he was one of the first people to publicly acknowledge and recognize that there are suspicious things going on among these ancient cultures because we have societies that were so far distant from each other um, that they couldn't, they didn't reasonably have contact, direct contact with each other, but they're expressing ideas and symbols in the same forms, oftentimes using the same words, um, very often with complicated symbolism associated with the forms. Uh, They're using the same um, stone working techniques. They're using those techniques to produce the same kinds of shapes and structures. Uh, They're telling uh, um, mythical stories that are based on the same essential themes, very often with the same episodes being represented. It's it's very suspicious. It was very suspicious to him. How could it be that all of these cultures were thinking about things in such similar ways in ancient times? And he, being a psychiatrist, came up with a psychological um, explanation for that. Uh, there's an old saying that says, if you consult a surgeon about a problem, he's going to come up with a surgical solution. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. So right. it's the same way. You ask a psychiatrist, he's going to come up with a psychiatric um, interpretation. And his his conclusion was that um, there is a common way, uh, a common psychological uh, mode of thinking that humanity has, perhaps even a connection to a, a collective unconscious that allowed these um, cultures to conceptualize these things in the same ways. Uh, my My perspective is a little bit... Um, simpler than that, working from what groups like the Dogen and the Buddhists and other cultures say, it looks to me as if many different cultures around the world were instructed by the same set of teachers. And so mm-hmm. it would be the same situation as if you know you and I had gone to the same high school decades apart from each other but had the same math teacher and came away with mm-hmm. the, the same little funny tricks of how to solve, how to solve a math problem or the same uh, story problems or the same whatever, you know, that meet at the party. It's not because we got it from each other. It's because we got it from a common teacher. Sure. And well, that, that brings up who were the, the teachers. And, and with everything mysterious nowadays, it seems like extraterrestrials come into it. <laughs> could, could that be a possibility? Well, again, working from what the culture <laughs> flatly claim to be true, the Buddhists flatly say that their most sacred symbols were gifted to humanity by a non-human source. Hmm. Now, the Dogen, I have said, preserve a very similar symbolic system, but in an entirely different language. So it's not likely that the Buddhists got it from the Dogen or the Dogen got it from the Buddhists. And both um, symbolic systems have legitimate claims to being ancient. So it looks as if two different cultures managed to preserve the intimate details of this, this tradition down through the millennia to the present day so that 
a modern authority on Buddhism will be in agreement with a modern authority on Dogen uh, symbolism about what a symbol means or about what a ritual means, and predictably so. So the Dogen also say that they got their system from a non-human source, but the Dogen are, are a little more specific. They say not only was it non-human, but it was originally non-material. The Dogen perspective is that a non-material consciousness was able to take action materially and instruct us in these things. Now, that agreement between the two the two groups puts a researcher like me in sort of a hard position because I only have two two places to go with that. I can say I can, I can take the stance that well, yes, they managed to keep all these other intimate details straight for thousands of years, but they both must have both somehow misremembered in matching ways who they got it from. <laughs> or I can say, I can allow the possibility that what they're saying is true, that they both remembered that last piece correctly also, and that now I have to consider, is there a scientific, reasonable, a scientifically reasonable perspective to think that some non-human or non-material entity could have been interacting with humanity thousands of years ago? Hmm. I, I give a lot of credit to you, sir, for being in academia, working with several from, you know, with several um, wonderful researchers that are brave enough to, to do this work. And me being someone that's just layman and intuitive and received <laughs> received things, you know, uh, from the same downloaded source. Um, I, I really, you know, admire the fact that you, I, I understand and, you know, I, I've talked to several uh, researchers and they've, you know, Dr. Uh, Professor Jim Shears um, working with the ancient work, earthworks said, you know, the elders are willing to give them your, their knowledge. You might want to listen. Right. And so <laughs> it, it is one of those things I can imagine this, this knowledge has been so sacred and protected for so long because it needed to be. And what the elders have told us is that these portals and that what you had talked about, it sounds like, it must have been some sort of portal, but they're saying that now is the time that these portals must be opened and waken up. So I think it's beautiful that, you know, I think we're all receiving some knowledge, if it's an archaeologist or, you know, whoever, to find these portals and, and wake them back up for these times. What do you think about that? No, I think that that could very well be true. I, I wanted to say that I particularly admire people like you who experience these things personally and experiencing them in your own unique ways because um, I sort of came out of the box unconnected to any of this stuff. It was all transparent to me. I, at age 18, I would have told you I had no reason to think that any of this was real or that there was any, anything to any of it. But I'm always happy to hear from people to to learn how they experience the thing. There's so many different ways um, Kabbalism uh, defines um, several different, I mean, half a dozen or more different classes of what they call mystics based on how people experience things. You know, some people um, use hallucinogenic drugs to, to be able to put themselves in a state where they're, they are um, connected to this stuff. Um, some people, uh, psychic intuitives or psychic healers, um, are, directed, are connected more the way um, uh, that I'm talking about uh, sort of in a way that goes along with this esoteric tradition. They're sort of connected to non-materiality the way that an initiate is connected to an informant. 
And so okay. uh, there are all sorts of different ways that this plays out. Um, people who have psychic abilities and people who have pretty much anything that falls into the category of paranormal for us has the potential to be connected to this. Yeah, that's even, even what I was just dreams. thinking. It seems to bridge the gap between normal and paranormal. Right. And the first thing a person learns in my field of study is that there are things going on we can't explain, and some of them are subtle, and some of them are very overt. Um, I think one of the the major uh, convincing events for me was uh, early in my process, I was following along um, through the bibliography of, uh, of another book that I had read about the Dogen, uh, trying to, to pick out the sources that I wanted to try to acquire to learn more about this stuff. And there was one that I could see that I, I really needed. It was called Ancient Near Eastern Texts of the, uh, Relating to the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. so I went on, this was back before you could go online and order out-of-print books online. And so I had exhausted all of the local and regional sources I had for used books, and none of the new bookstores could get the book for me. And I had even gone, I am a graduate of Vassar College. I had even gone to the Vassar College library and asked if they could get a copy of it through their interlibrary loan service for me, and they couldn't. And so finally I had to give up and say, well, you know, I'm not going to get that book. That's that's one source I'm not going to have access to. And a couple of weeks later, a box turned up on our back doorstep. My, my wife had an aging cousin who was living in a small apartment in Queens, New York, and every so often he'd sort of reach critical mass in the apartment and toss a bunch of random crap into a box and mail it off to a relative just to get rid of it. Oh. And in that box is my book. Oh, of course. Oh, my, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> so I thought, at that point I was convinced that there could be things going on here that I'm not, I, I'm not on top of. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. love the goosebumps. I get the goosebumps. That's awesome. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's a great story. Um, what are the are there similarities between the Dogon and uh, Christianity? Yes, but um, you have to understand that the focus of of the symbolism I'm working with is at around 3000 BC. It's about the start of dynastic Egypt, and that's a thousand years further away from Christianity than we are right now, only in the other direction. So from my point of view, Christianity is sort of a late source to be trying to deal with this stuff. All of the original meanings are going to have have played out 3,000 years or more earlier than that. So I see some connections to Christianity, but Christianity doesn't typically become a, a worthwhile source for me for trying to pin down meanings. Okay. All right. You discuss a lot in the book the materiality and non-materiality. Explain the difference. This gets into root concepts of how Samkhya says, scientifically, things are put together. Samkhya says that universes form in pairs and that one of them we can think of as being non-material, meaning no matter, no material objects, no particles, no um, planets, no solar systems. The other universe is a material universe that has all those things. And that there's a cycle of energy that flows between those two universes that um, is as essential to life in those universes as the cycle of water is on the Earth. We know that 
you know, if there weren't the cycle of water evaporating from the oceans and creating clouds that produce rain that flows back to the oceans, we wouldn't have life on the planet. You need that motion, that movement in forces to be able to sustain life. And the universe needs this, this cycle of energy uh, to be able to sustain life. Um, as you get down into understanding comparatively how the different traditions talk about that cycle of energy, because they all talk about it, um, you realize it's not just energy that's, that's scrolling between the universes, it's also mass. And so what the real situation is, is that you have one universe becoming progressively less massive, while the other universe gets progressively more massive, a little bit like sand in an hourglass moving from the top globe down into the bottom globe. But Einstein says that the more massive a domain becomes, the slower time runs for it, the slower events happen. Time slows down if you become more massive. So the essential difference between, one of the essential differences between non-materiality and materiality is how quickly time runs. If you hmm. took a, a video of uh, a, a nighttime video of traffic on a highway with the headlights of the cars, and you sped it up enough, you'd reach a point where you didn't no longer saw the individual cars. You'd see what looked like waves of light. Mm-hmm. The perspective is that the reason, the key reason why matter looks like waves to us in the quantum domain is because time runs ultra quickly there compared to us because there's less mass. And so um, I ended up um, writing an entire book because the, the foundation to try to explain how that dynamic of energy works is sort of a book-length explanation. It <laughs> <very, Yeah>. requires <laughs> a lot of pieces in the right place to be able to have it make sense to somebody. So I ended yeah, up writing yeah. a whole book. It's called seeking the primordial uh, to try to lay that out in a sensible way, even in a way that I myself could understand it. I, when I first started to try to explain the concept to people I'm close with, I found I needed to work from a PowerPoint that I had worked up for myself just to keep myself on track to not forget <laughs> to say you know, certain po- things at certain points to be able to make it make sense. Sure. Right. Now, if the difference is time frame between the two universes, then if you think of that hourglass with the sand sifting from the top globe down into the bottom globe, at the midpoint of the cycle where there's the same amount of sand in the top and in the bottom, those time frames equalize, or they should equalize, according to Einstein. And at that point, it becomes theoretically possible for someone on the non-material side to move to the material side. Um, it's the same concept as um, as we see with um, deep sea water pressure. If you have a submarine, you know, thousands of feet beneath the ocean, it's not safe. It's not uh, for a person to just step outside into the the water. They have to pass through an airlock first, where pressure becomes equalized, and then they can safely step out into the water or back into the oh. submarine. Same thing in space. You have to equalize the pressure before you can move. Same concept here that when the time frames equalize, then it becomes theoretically possible to move across. So now if we imagine that cycle of energy the way a number of ancient cultures do, they, they um, some conceptualize it as the yuga cycle, some refer to it as the great year. Well, if we think of it in terms of the normal cycle of a year, 
those midpoints in the cycle equate to the equinoxes of a year. It's sort of the midpoint where the sun's at its midpoint of motion in the year. Mm -hmm. At those equinoxes, all the ancient cultures are celebrating things that point right to what I just said might be true. We have Judaism celebrating um, a holiday called Passover, the, the end of a Passover Seder by opening a door to the outside to let a non-material entity named Eliyahu in, imaginarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you have at an, you also have a holiday called uh, okay in in Egypt, the name for that equinox was Kepper, which is the dung beetle, who represents the concept of non-existence coming into existence, which is what I'm talking about. Well, mm-hmm. in Judaism, they celebrate a holiday called Yom Kepper, Yom Kippur at the equinox. Same idea. Sure. In the Masonic tradition, you have concepts that relate to this cycle of energy. There, there's a symbol I talk about that is also present at Gobekli Tepe that the, the Masons um, flatly say represents the energies of these two universes coming together, shaped like the letter H in English. <laughs> that's, so that's non-materiality and materiality is... Um, Samkhya says that the non-material domain has perfect knowledge but an inability to act, and those are both functions of a very quick time frame. Essentially, all events happen at once, so um, they have complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen because it all happens at once. But it happens so quickly that there's no longer a, a discrete moment left in which to take action, and so they don't have the ability to do anything. That's with a fully non-material universe. A fully material universe like ours has Mm -hmm. incomplete knowledge but full ability to act. And so Samkhya says that there are routine attempts made from the non-material side to communicate knowledge to the material side or to induce action on the material side and that those come in the form of all the things we're talking about, vivid dreams, um, the unusual behavior of animals, um, Synchronicities, meaningful synchronicities, um, all the paranormal sorts of effects, you know, psychic and clairvoyance and um, all of those abilities to perceive things. How important is synchronicity? It's important because most people encounter synchronicities in their life. And if they were like me, they sort of look past those or find a reason to just sort of, sort of slough them off. Oh, this, this is just a coincidence. Even Samka agrees that simple coincidence is a thing that doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. But synchronicities, you, um, synchronicities tend to come with self-validation. The same strange, unusual element or reference or whatever turns up repeatedly in different contexts in a person's life over a short period of time. And if you learn mm-hmm. to pay attention to that, then you start to become aware of the possibility of an attempt at a communication. And then it's a question of trying to make sense of what what those references um, might might be about. Um, but the way the, the, way the uh, dynamic works, simply paying attention to it sort of draws it to yourself. Um, a comparison I use is imagine you're at a, at a party, a loud party, um, and you only speak 
say you're from uh, Eastern Europe and you really only speak eight, uh, Eastern European languages and nobody else at the party speaks that, but then a third of the way into the party, someone points out to you that there's a guy over in the corner who speaks a little bit of Ukrainian. Chances are you're going to spend the whole rest of the night trying to talk to that guy. <laughs> well, that's the way non-materiality responds to anyone who pays attention to these synchronicities is, aha, here's someone that there's the potential to communicate with, and now suddenly the communication comes more persistently. But it's, again, the job of the person who's who's experiencing those to to acknowledge that there might be something going on and to try to make sense of what it is. Mm-hmm. Tamara and I have talked about that a lot, how, how different times of, of the day come up. 11-11, so, so often. You just happen to look at the clock, there's 11-11 again. Right. Uh, again, in distinguishing between meaningful synchronicities and, and casual ones, just sort of, sort of incidental ones, some of them are sort of self-fulfilling because we know that any number of times we've looked up at the clock and it's as it is now, you know, 12 minutes of 10 on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason to remember that or to pay special notice to it unless, unless it happened again and again night after night. But 11-11 or 12-12, you know, a number, number that um, has patterned to it itself is much more easily remembered and, and we're paying more attention to when that when that happens. Sure. Um, the book... Go, Go ahead, ahead, Laird. No, uh, that's got to finished. <laughs> the book is uh, Primal Wisdom of the Ancient, The Cosmological Plan for Humanity, published by Inner Traditions. Laird, I got to tell you, I love Inner Traditions. They, they put I me in touch. Oh, they put me in touch with all you guys, you great guests. They send me the books, and, and it's, all, it's fascinating. They're so easy to work with as well. Uh, I found them very easy to work with and very competent also. You know, it's a great, great team there. They've been around for a long time, you know, probably 40 or 45 years, and um, a lot of skill and talent in that group. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I've noticed. Uh, where can our listeners pick up the book? Well, the, the obvious place is Inner Traditions website, which is www.innertraditions.com. Or there's, I also have a, an author page at simonandschuster.com where you can find any of my books. Uh, but through Amazon or through any of the bookstores, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble, there's a fairly good chance that um, one or more of my books will be on the shelf. And if not, you can certainly order a book through them. Sure. Once again, Primal Wisdom of the Ancients, The Cosmological Plan for Humanity. Laird, you've given me a lot to think and stir about tonight. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have trouble sleeping, I think, with everything you've uh, you've presented. Thank you very much, Laird. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure, absolutely. You have a good night. Thanks. Well, Tamara, what do you think of that? <laughs> he blew my cosmic mind. I could talk to him. Yeah. Him. Give me his number. I'm gonna call. Give me his number. I, I want to call him back. Yeah. Um, no. Brilliant. Could... Brilliant. Yeah, oh, yeah. Brilliant guest. And uh, as as you know, Ryan, my sister and I have done extensive research at many of these types of locations and working with Egyptologists and and archaeologists and and uh, the native tribes of Wisconsin as well as you know um, Guatemala it's uh, we're definitely in some awakening times and 
And I am thrilled and excited to get his book because, you know, my elder friends, our teachers always said us, you know, told us, you know, portals are waking up and we're in a time of great change and we're going to get through it. You know, we're going to get through it in a beautiful way, but it is important to look for the signs and believe that there is, you know, I love it when academia wakes up, but that there might be something, um, you know, of an angelic um, <laughs> guidance steering us all if, if, if we, you know, if we listen. So it's yeah. a great show. Again, I wasn't uh, sure if I Excellent guess. Oh, yeah, he was something. Um, I wasn't sure if I should have gotten into the extraterrestrial thing or not with him, but uh, he, he seems like he's uh, he's running right there. I was, I was so proud of you. I was so proud of you. Extraterrestrial. Well, you know, you know, I was, you know, freaked out with that, too, being somebody that has experienced um, seeing many objects and hearing many stories over the years of working in the paranormal. And um I think it's time we all just wake up to it a little bit uh, because it seems like everybody else is right with phones and YouTube and so many questions and so little answers. I think we're all waking up to go. Hmm. But one of the best things that um, my, my teacher spirit man, Lee Thunder, um, a shaman taught me is there, there are angels. You just call them angels in your tradition. So that takes the weirdness away from it you know it's like there's there's many different realms um and we're not alone and we're never alone and we do have angelic beings helping us create right helping us create sure. I mean, the ancient ones the muse you know i love that nikola tesla would talk about how his angels would give him direct downloads of this knowledge that you know is to be gifted to the planet as well as on the other side of the world, other people have received that knowledge gifted by the angels. So, you know, I think we're all, you know, able to connect and ask for angelic guidance for these times. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's just, I, I think he did very well. I know incredibly brilliant men that, um, you know, are nervous to talk about it because it's such a taboo from what they've been you know, programmed to believe for so many years or what the textbooks say. So I just love it. I, it just gets me so excited. And because uh, <laughs> we are all waking up. We have to. Left brain, right brain, you know, um, yeah. men, women, children, we're all waking up to to we are more than just this. Sure. <laughs> the, the whole conversation kind of reminded me of Dr. Greg Little. Um, remember, remember him? He was uh, the oh, we talked about yeah. Edgar Casey with him. And, uh, uh, yeah, just while Laird was talking there, I thought this, this is another one I could listen to all night. Just, just keep going, keep going. <laughs> just like right, Greg Little. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I am very impressed with, um, the guests you've been, re- you know, getting and intuitively getting for us to all learn from and, uh, put the pieces of the puzzle. We all have a piece of the puzzle. So it helps us wake up with this knowledge as well. We all connect the dots. And uh, cool times we're in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Coming up tomorrow, um, a special Thursday show because we missed Monday. Dr. Uma Naidu will uh, will be my guest. We'll talk about her book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Food. 
an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more. So did you know, Tamara, that uh, let me, I'm just paging through the book here. Salami can cause depression. Do you eat much salami? I, I think you don't. Any of the, any of the, any of the processed meats can. I suppose, yeah. Any of the yeah. processed, yeah, the nitrates and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it all comes down to, you know, you are what you eat. And yeah. uh, there are high vibrational foods. And, you know, we're junkies here. I mean, especially in the state of Wisconsin, <laughs> we are just, we're junkies. And uh, we have to, you know, right now I think it's a better time than any to receive this knowledge and the research behind it to remember, um, you know, food wasn't always full of, um, you know, food wasn't always full of all these um, chemicals and, and things, but, you know, the world wasn't out. We were also, you know, farming our own food. So it's just, you know, everybody needs to be fed and we just, we're all learning here. Right. Yeah. 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 It brings up what we were talking about the other day when aspartame came up. I was, as I was, again, paging through uh, Dr. Naidu's book, she talks a lot about uh, artificial sweeteners. And I really thought that I had found something. I thought I discovered something when I found xylitol. You familiar with xylitol? Never heard of it. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It's an it's a, it's a artificial sweetener that is supposed to be good for you and good for your teeth. And I, I thought, oh, wow, this stuff is too good to be true. It it's t- tastes sweet. It tastes good on my grape nuts. You know, it turns out no, in the book, it's just, it's, it's just another artificial sweetener that, uh, you know, your, your, your brain knows is actually sugar. So there's right. no trick in well, your body. Even, even honey, you know, sugar, sugar, all natural sugar, and honey mm-hmm. is a form of sugar, right? But we were only supposed to get it in the summer, right? So... Yeah, I think we're all a bunch of sugar addicts, so I will be excited. <laughs> you know, I, I've been a, you know, sugar crack addict um, on and off with my Norwegian <laughs> Wisconsin diet, and um, it's hard because it's everywhere, right? And you got to yeah. So, um, yeah, it's something I've helped people get off and got on and off myself many times. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to her knowledge. But great show as always. Oh, very, very good one. Can also Excellent guest. Breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have a great sure. night, Ryan. Looking forward to All right. talking to you Friday. Okay. We'll talk tomorrow. Once again, folks, Dr. Uma Naidu coming up tomorrow night at eight o'clock. This is your brain on food. And then Connie Habish, uh, awakeningself.com is her website. We'll talk about the book Awakening from Anxiety. That's coming up Friday at 8 o'clock. Take a look at RyanLindsayShow.com for information on guests coming up. Until then, we'll talk later. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Ryan Lindsay Show. Visit RyanLindsayShow.com for more information. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.